This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. We are back after a week off, and boy, did I miss some things. Over the 10 days or so before this recording, there has been an avalanche of bad news about the pandemic. That, in turn, has led to an avalanche of bad news about the possible return of college football. To bring everyone up to speed, I'll be joined today by Nicole Arbeck from The Athletic, who was all over a busy week of news, highlighted by both the Big Ten and Pac-12 scaling back their seasons to just include conference games. Nicole and I talk about the trickle-down ramifications of those conferences taking such drastic steps so early, and the trickle-up ramification of the Ivy League being the first Division I conference to decide that it was punting on fall sports altogether and hoping to make them up in the spring. Everything in college football is connected, and everything is now connected to the pandemic. We'll talk about why the players being at a low risk to get severely sick from COVID-19 isn't enough to ensure a football season. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcast, just about anywhere you get your podcast. Please subscribe. And if so inclined, give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Nicole Auerbach is the great National College Football writer for The Athletic. She has been very busy lately while I was off just gallivanting on vacation, having the greatest time being off the grid in the mountains in Wyoming. And the world exploded last week in college football. Nicole was doing a great job of keeping everybody up to date and covering this mess. Nicole, how are you? Well, I'm jealous that you were disconnected and in the mountains and not sitting in your own apartment, not moving, sitting on the same part of the couch for four days straight. I'm, I'm very jealous. Yeah. When I finally started to get a little information and as the week went, went on, the information got worse and worse. And I will say this, the first text I received after I started to actually get service was from a source telling me the Big Ten's going to have some big news coming up in about you know forty five minutes or so, and I was not so you, in any and I was that, not was in that any like the position. Day later, <laughs> no, no, no. It it was the, the funny thing was it was about forty five minutes before the the news happened, but I was just not in any particular position to do anything with it other than try to like you know respond to the text. What's going on? I I don't really have my computer right now, but what, what's up? <laughs> And then I ended up finding out through, I mean, I had deleted Twitter the whole nine yards. And so the vacation ended with me sort of starting to work. I mean, I, I missed the big news, but I was sort of on, I was trying to keep on top of and help the uh, my colleagues with the Pac-12, knowing that that could pop. And 
Yeah, listen, and now we're now now we might be in a little bit of a lull again. So let's kind of start there because I don't know how much backwards we'll we'll get to everything, but but let's just start with the most recent event. We're recording on Tuesday morning slash afternoon. I guess the significant news to come out of Monday was that the SEC isn't going to make any big decisions right now. They're targeting more end of July. And as we started chatting before we even started recording, we're kind of figuring out why. Let's sort of compare and contrast. Why do you think the Big Ten and the Pac-12 moved quickly? And why do you think the SEC is waiting a bit and the other conferences and the other Power Five conferences? So so one thing I think is important to start with, which is pretty interesting, is I've wondered all along, and I'm sure you have too, Ralph, whether or not the Power Five leagues would actually stick together on Mm -hmm. all of their decision making Mm -hmm. because up until the point where the Big Ten decided to go conference only, the narrative had been very consistent and controlled, right? Like that these the five commissioners, they they talk almost every single day. They're on the same page. They are working towards, you know, working on minimum standards for testing and health and safety protocols together, right? Like there was this sense of unity. And that was different from how all the decisions came back down in March when everyone's canceling basketball tournaments and things were more disjointed because they haven't had four months of meeting consistently. So I've been wondering all along if that would actually hold up when big decisions would need to be made. And the Big Ten broke that unity. They they, they broke away and, and they decided to go conference only. Pac-12 follows the next day. So I had been hearing for about a week that both of those leagues were close to making that decision. There was momentum building. This was something that they were looking at doing. And I think, you know, everyone to that point, and again, those two commissioners hadn't been the ones necessarily saying, we're going to wait until the end of July or early August. Like, that's our timeline, right? Like, that, that is the, the latest that they can probably make decisions about the fall season, you know, were it to start somewhat on time. But I don't know that they necessarily held themselves to like waiting all of that time to make their decision. My, my, my understanding and read on the situation is when you make a decision like going conference only, what it did was, and this is kind of why, you know, when I broke the news about the Big Ten, that it sent shockwaves through everyone else. And you saw how the Big 12 leaders and the SEC leaders were, were kind of, you know, very frustrated that the Big Ten did this because it signaled that the the season was in peril, right? Like mm-hmm. you'd, you'd had some leaders talk about, you know, we need, we need, you know, kind of the public to, to change their behavior. We need to contain this virus more, but to make a drastic decision like that, that has so many ripple effects and affects, you know, in the big 10, it affects so many Mac schools. And that's, that's a conference that has such a close relationship with the big 10. And you know what it means when you cancel those games to make a decision like that shows everyone that the season is in doubt, the fall season is in doubt. And I think that that was something kind of just dealing with reality was a piece of this decision. And I think, you know, providing some clarity for your players themselves who have kind of just been, you know, hanging out in limbo and, you know, maybe there's going to be a season on time. Maybe it's going to go to conference only. Maybe people are going to look at other contingency plans. And it gives them some clarity as well that this is, this is serious. This is in a dire situation. If there is a fall season, it's not going to look like normal. 
um, and you know people will need to adjust. So to me, those are reasons that you act sooner. It, it, it gives clarity to your non-conference opponents, um, either to try to you know fill those game, fill those those places on their schedule, or you know just again evaluate what what they're going to eventually decide about fall sports themselves. And I think it it signals something to the to the college sports landscape and to their players. I, and again. You can argue whether or not that's that's worth breaking, you know, kind of, again, that unity and the cohesion that the other Power Five leagues had been operating under. But I do think those are reasons to do what you do if you go early. And there's also something to be said for the idea that it really didn't start with the Big Ten, that it started a week before with the Ivy yes. League. That right. the, the Ivy League saying, no, we're, we're, we're foregoing all fall, fall sports. We'll see. We'll try to have a spring football season or spring fall sports in the spring because you know the Big 10 and the Ivy League work together they collaborate on things they've done collaborations on concussion uh, yep. research and things along those lines people poo poo this stuff all the time because they're you're so focused on the sports angle but the Big Ten is a bunch of AAU universities, right? Highly accredited academic universities. They're not the Ivy League, but they sort of have this, again, they have this this relationship with the Ivy League and sort of view themselves as maybe a little more akin to the Ivy League than maybe in some ways academically to the other Power Five conferences. That you you can take that for what it's worth, but I know that's the that's the mood, that's the that's the feeling within a lot of those those rooms where the presidents gather. So I do think and, and you know have had people tell me like you know the fact that the, the the Ivy League went first here and made such a big step it sort of everybody it made everybody go okay so they're doing this mm-hmm. what do they know uh, I talked to the Patriot League commissioner yesterday, uh, Jennifer Heppel, who is also, by the way, a former Big Ten uh, yep, administrator. Yeah, she worked in the Big Ten. Mm-hmm. Exactly. For a long time. And what she said, listen, did it matter that, that we followed the Ivy League? We made our own decision, but when the Ivy League does something like that, it certainly makes you go, what do they know? Why are they making this decision? And let's bring that information into our meetings. Yes. So I, yes. I do think this has had a, something of a cascading effect that started with the Ivy League. And, and I, listen, it also seems very obvious that these other leagues are making, I mean, they're, they're not hiding it. They're making these sort of contingency plans. I think the biggest thing with the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12 is, and again, this is something we had chatted about before we started recording. I don't think those leagues will go to an all-conference schedule. Where do you think those leagues are heading? I think it'll be something similar, but maybe a little nuanced and a little a tweak here or there. So that's a good question. And just to echo on, on the Ivy League front, um, glad that you are back and off away from vacation because I can't tell you how many people, even in our profession, who are saying the Ivy League decision has nothing to do with anything else at the major college football level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you make the point about the university presidents. These decisions are coming from university presidents. It's worth reinforcing that. This is not up to a coach or an athletic director. It's, It's up to the university presidents of these schools to make these votes and determinations on the season. You know, my alma mater, Michigan, the president came from Brown, like there is there there's a lot of, you know, as you mentioned, you know, ties in with research and things like that. But this idea of trusting the experts that the Ivy League re, you know relies on and the fact that they went for some basketball and that was proven to be the correct decision. These are things that do matter. And, you know, again, if, if the Ivy League's decision creates an opening or pr- potentially provides a little cover for other FCS leagues or lower level leagues to make similar decisions, 
things trickle up, they trickle up, they trickle down, they trickle sideways in college sports. Everything is interconnected. So it's just important to to, to remember that with, with all of these decisions, because, you know, even if you look at, okay, well, is the SEC and the ACC, what are they going to do with their non-conference games? You've got a number of conferences that have members who have buy games against those teams that are waiting to see what happens before they can make a determination about fall sports, right? It really matters if they're going to have a couple of those games that basically prop up their entire athletic department for the year. So all of this stuff is is interconnected. I will say one thing to keep in mind with the ACC and the SEC is they play four games against each other. These are very, you know, important. On the same day of the season, too. On the same day of the season, and they're, they're important games. Um, someone mentioned to me with the ACC in particular, because, you know, I think there was, there was this, this thinking that maybe the ACC domino would fall pretty soon after the big 10. And, you know, I was talking to someone who, who's very plugged in in that league who made the point right away about those four in-state rivalry games. Apparently three of them are supposed to be on the ACC network this year. That is valuable programming. Mm -hmm. That is, that is important inventory, right? So I, I think when you think about those leagues, and the way that they might approach non-conference, there's certainly a model out there, even if it's, you know, I don't know if it's written down yet, I'm sure it is, of protecting those four games in addition to conference games within your own league. Plus you have Notre Dame, which is absolutely going to be taken care of by the ACC. There's no way the ACC is just booting Notre Dame to the side, cause, which has, Notre Dame, I believe, has six ACC games scheduled this season. I think part of that is the contract that they've had to have at least five. And I think there was another lingering game that was from a previous contract that they just worked into the deal. I don't know if they'll play every single one of those games, but I actually think there's a chance Notre Dame might play more ACC games than six, than less than six, that somehow they could be that the they get That they get fully roped in. Yeah, that they, protected. exactly, that they, they could look at, okay, what have you lost what do we need to fill out our schedule? Maybe a Miami after losing Michigan State and Notre Dame has lost Wisconsin. Okay, maybe you guys play. I don't know if that's for sure, but I think that there's there, there's no way Notre Dame is getting cut loose. Right, and, and that was one of the immediate questions, especially when it's the Big Ten and the Pac-12 that cut non-conference games. You know, I, I can't tell you how many questions about Notre Dame I was getting last week because, you know, those were their marquee games and, and those are games that they are reliable. And if you're an it FBS independent, not just Notre Dame, but you're not banking on a, a global pandemic popping up and people going conference only. And that's how you lose all your games, because typically you're just worried about filling your own schedule. And it's not the hardest thing in the world. Right. Especially if you're Notre Dame. And then this happens and all of a sudden you're scrambling. But they do have that relationship with the ACC. A lot of their sports are housed in that league. And there is that assumption that that they would help them out. So, again, all of this is is tbd and you know you could make decisions that go beyond that you could make just a total determination about fall sports you could there, there's so many different contingency plans that everyone is working through um but when you have two of the power five leagues go conference only that affects fcs leagues group of five leagues and then you have a bunch of people waiting for the other three because if the other three make the same determination or they protect you know those inner um I don't know. What, 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 do we, what do we call them? Like between power five games, you know, like the inner circle um, games. Is that, is that I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. The upper circle. That was, a, yeah. that was another question. Someone in the big 12 had asked me was why did they get rid of those games? Like why is Ohio state, Oregon canceled? I, if, I, well, but I think, well, I'm sorry to jump in, but I thought it had to do a lot with just like keeping 
if you have a smaller group, the scheduling, moving the pieces on the schedule board become easier if you have to start canceling things and postponing things. Yeah, and and that's my and that's what I said to them too because I think there is the testing component, right? That you know within mm-hmm. your league the minimum standards that everyone's doing the same thing. So when you mix populations of players, like they're all, you know, it's not like there's an undetected outbreak. But the Power Five, the leagues are going to be all doing similar things. So that was their point. And and it's not really that. It's about when you get rid of variables that are outside your own control, like non-conference and and extra decision makers and and all of these other pieces to the puzzle and you take it to just your membership where you're meeting all the time you have that flexibility if you need to push back games you need to take a two-week break in the middle if there's outbreaks in certain parts of the country you need to swap opponents right you have all that flexibility if you stay within your league and so that's a piece to this that I think people are missing because they're saying like well this game is is 40 miles from that campus so why is that one canceled, but the one that's 300 miles is still going, right? It's, it's, it's not about distance. It is about consistency in the testing and then that flexibility in the schedule. Yeah, I think the flexibility in the schedule is even more so, right? And especially when oh, it comes yeah, to, the, to the Power 5 games. It's just so much easier. Well, and plus, if also, if you shorten the schedule, I think the key was to sort of shorten the schedule. And I had one uh, um, administrator tell me as I was trying to catch up yesterday. Yesterday was spent of me, like, just calling people and saying, what's going on? What's going on? Like, help me catch up on what, what I've missed. Um, so I had one administrator tell me, like, like they thought all the power five leagues were going to land on a nine plus one. So in other words, uh, maybe a slightly like a 10 game schedule, slightly expanded in the conferences. At least if you're in a conference that ACC, SEC that plays um, eight, eight conference games. And then they were going to try to protect those one, at least one big non-conference game, whether it would have been uh, USC for Notre Dame or uh, or maybe a Wisconsin Notre Dame and things like that. So his that this yeah this administrator felt like there was at least that that was that that's the direction things were heading for all of the Power Five. And again, that's why there was a little bit of a oh really you're you're just doing this right mm-hmm. you're just going on your own here. The other sort of funny thing is though if you talk to you know, I talked to one source uh, sort of within the Big 12 sphere or excuse me, the Big 10 sphere. And, and they were like, everybody knew this was coming. If they tell you they didn't know it was yeah. coming. And we, and we went about it and we told people before the announcement. Bah, 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 bah. And then you talk to like another source and it's like, I don't know. They just sort of went off on their own. So I think there is one truth, but I think it's sort of like what lens you're seeing this through sort of determines the way you felt like this went down. Yes, and I think that it is helpful for certain people to posture about things in certain ways, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And th- it's actually, it's just, it, it's an interesting window into our jobs, right? Because we're constantly figuring out, you know, what is someone's motivation with telling me this thing, right? And and, and how am I going to frame this in the most accurate possible way? So it is really fascinating because that absolutely happened. And, you know, you, you talk to people up until, you know, I tried to talk to people in all different leagues and all these things. And, and the perception of, of how that went down depends on, you know, who they're being told stuff from, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think it, mm-hmm. the idea of, you know, the other power five leagues being blindsided, that 
helps in a certain way, right? Like that helps make you, it makes you look like you were trying to be a team player, right? You wanted to do everything, all five of you together, even if maybe you didn't. And you, you understand the idea of, of, you know, doing what you need to do to keep your conference in the best possible position, which, you know, the big 10 and the PAC 12 believe that they made decisions to do that. Right. So it's, it's very interesting because this is all the political maneuvering behind the scenes. Like, I don't know if, um, if you find that stuff as fascinating as I do, but it's been really fascinating. And I think that's also when you go back to what the Ivy League did, that's sort of why, you know, somebody has to go first on certain things. Mm-hmm. And it's the same, you know, now with the Big Ten out of the Power Five making a big decision. Whoever goes first invites a certain level of of critique that the person who goes second doesn't, right? We're talking about the way that people reacted to the Big Ten. We're not really even talking about did people care the Pac-12 did the same thing. Mm-hmm. No, no doubt. I, I think that's absolutely the case and, and, and why the Ivy League was significant. Let me touch on the Big 12 for a second just because we haven't. I want to cover all the Power Five, and I, I, then I think we're going to sort of work our way down here because you've been talking about how the, the ripple effects will work and we'll go here, there, and everywhere. When it just comes to the schedule, because I know people are really interested in scheduling. So obviously the Big 12 only has 10 teams, and they play non-conference games already. Playing just nine games, again, it goes back to why I think that the SEC and the ACC won't land on just conference games. They'll do a little bit of a maybe a nine plus one or, or work in some out-of-conference games. I think the SEC could find themselves helping out the Big 12 a little bit. I could see that maybe happening where, you know, Alabama needs a game now, right, after USC pulled out. And I don't think the Big 12 is going to want to be at just nine games. My guess is they're going to want to bump that to 10 if they can. And the only way they can do that is to play some kind of non-conference game. There are some games on the schedule that could be preserved, like Oklahoma, Tennessee, if they want to go that route. But my suspicion is the Big 12 also will look for a way to get to 10 couple things on that front. So again, when we talk about everything being interconnected, the Big 12 and the SEC do a basketball challenge together. Mm. They have relationships related to the Sugar Bowl. Okay, right? So when you think about who's going to help Good out point. who, yeah. it's there, there's a lot of leagues that already work really closely with each other on certain things. Um, the other thing I'll say is the Pac-12, when they voted to go conference only, they did not vote necessarily on a specific model. They're, they're still working through that this week. They don't even know, again, as of the time we record this, we don't know whether it's going to be nine or 10 games, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the idea that you could just play nine if you're the Big 12. First off, let, let me just go back for a second. If we get to a point where they're able to play 10 games, <laughs> that's amazing. That's yeah. great. That's just like... We're above and beyond. We're, we're jumping for joy, right, Ralph? That means we got a full season to cover. Basically. So so I think, you know, ultimately that number may not matter too much um, if there are cancellations or the season's not played in the fall. But, um, but, but certainly, I mean, you know, when you're going through all of these contingency plans and proposals and layouts and stuff, um, you can make all those determinations, right, about a plus one, about, you know, a, a marquee, you know, non-conference thing. So helping somebody out, helping, helping out in Alabama. Um, but again, ultimately, nine versus ten may not matter. I, I think ten becomes aspirational because it's the idea of if we schedule ten and we lose one, the idea that, like, well, let's shoot a little higher because if we get wiped out, like eight is a representative season. So if we lose two, that's okay. Whereas if you're going in with only eight or nine, and now all of a sudden you're down to seven. So it's it, it's that game. I think that's yeah, why and, I think and, that's and, why ten is aspirational. 
Yeah, and it's a round number, and and mm-hmm. it is easy. And and plus, again, you're you're doing this. No one's officially. I mean, the Pac-12 pushed back the start of their you know mandatory workouts, but no one's really like said, okay, we're going to start on October first or anything. So you're still theoretically giving yourself. 13 weeks to play 10 games, right? Mm-hmm. Which again is about that flexibility. If you need to take a break in the middle, or if there's no contests or forfeits or whatever, they're going to determine that they would be. So it's all about buying yourself that fle- that time and that flexibility. If you need to push back on the front end, push, you know, pause in the middle, rearrange stuff. So um, I agree with you that 10 is aspirational. I think nine is aspirational. I think, you know, above a certain threshold is <laughs> all aspirational. Everything seems aspirational right now. Having, having a fall college football season aspirational right now, but that's where we are. Cause you still have to have these things. You have to have plans. You need to hope that they can work. Um, but you need to be prepared for like, you know, 10 different outcomes. Yeah. Some of the, the, the interesting stuff also you start hearing is this seemed to be coming out of more of the ACC, the idea of, we could play some conference games that won't, which is in vogue in the ACC because it happened last year. Conference matchups that don't count toward the standings just to fill out the schedule because the teams, mm-hmm. in some cases, the, the, especially those triangle teams, are so close to one another. So you could, as we did last year, when Wake and, and North Carolina played a non-conference game because they hadn't played in such a long time, that you you could end up with a situation where, uh, and I could, frankly, I could even see it maybe in the SEC to a certain degree of like, hey, we're going to determine our division champs only by division games, but you need an extra game, so we're going to let you play this crossover game. Uh, but I, you could see that as well. I'm just throwing yeah, that out there for I, fans. No, it's like, this is, but these about, are possibilities, even in the Pac-12, too. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about the division thing, too, because, again, one of the lines of thinking in the Big Ten and, and probably the Pac-12 as well is, do you play division games first? Because then, you know, yes, you could say, you know, you, you have a, a semblance of a conference race at that point, right? You're, you're determining your representatives from each division. So there, there's a lot of different ways you can do this. And um, it's actually, it, it kind of, it gets me excited in a way that like, you know, we're so used to schedules being set like four or five years in advance or decades out with certain games um, that it's like, it's kind of nice to think about how you could totally restructure this if you started from scratch. Um, and it kind of makes me want it like in a normal year where you can have fans and you could, you know, do these marquee non-conference games. And you're not worried about things getting canceled. Like I would love them to restructure a season like one of these ways, just to see what it was like. Like, I feel like it would be more exciting. Yeah, it would be very fun if it wasn't for a pandemic. (laughs) Yes, yes. Ralph, listen, so many of my conversations with people are very depressing. Give me one 30-second bit where I am letting my mind wander about this being in a positive setting, like a regular season. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple of seconds to to be positive. I'm going to take a quick break, (laughs) and then we're going to come back and talk about some of the trickle-down effect and also sort of this idea of why everything affects college football. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm talking to Nicole Auerbach from The Athletic, and we will be back right after this. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Nicole Auerbach from The Athletic is joining me. So let's let's talk a little bit about this trickle-down. Uh, let's just start from this. Let's start with the most dramatic thing. We've now had two FCS leagues 
punt on fall football and hope that they can get back to it in the spring. The Ivy League and the Patriot League, the Ivy League is the Ivy League. The Patriot League is sort of like aspires to be somewhat Ivy League-ish. And as someone who went to a Patriot League school, I like saying that because, you know, what the hell? Like, yeah, sure. We're just like the Ivy League here. There are Con- congratulations, Ralph, on that Fordham degree. Very yes, proud exactly. Of you. I was proud kidding of you. around so with same, the uh, same as Harvard. Kidding around with the Patriot League uh, commissioner yesterday a little bit, but but the fact of the matter is, they don't give out as many athletic scholarships. They they do do, do give out some, but they're not a fully scholarship league, and they are private schools, northeast based. You know, they're schools that are mostly in it for the academics, but it's not quite the Ivy League, but they got kind of an Ivy League, you know, poor man's Ivy League feel to it. So I think when they make moves to punt on the fall football season, a lot of people do, as we've talked earlier, sort of shrug and go, well, that's them, that they're different. Nicole, I, I think a lot of these FCS schools, and I think it starts with FCS and even works its way up into the low group of five, but let's start with FCS, are going to realize, they're going to run the numbers here and say, it is mm-hmm. far cheaper for us not to play. Right. So again, I think a lot of people are possibly already there, but there are certain leagues that have not gotten all their buy games canceled yet. Right. So. Right. The possibility of playing a game and getting a million dollar paycheck, $750,000 paycheck, like that is still obviously a huge carrot dangling in front of them. So they're not going to, probably not going to make determinations about punting on a fall season until they know about those games. But that is where this starts. So, so again, it's, it's the way that I've been saying it trickles up because, you know, you have the Ivy make a decision, Patriot League make a decision. What does that mean for other FCS leagues? There's a bunch of conferences that are basically basketball only that are prioritizing basketball, right? Like they need to have an NCAA tournament. They need to have a basketball season. Fall sports could get postponed to buy themselves time to figure out how to do this on campuses for basketball season, right? So you have you have a lot of leagues at that type of level that we're not that not everyone is paying attention to, but those decisions impact everything else as well. Because what if you get to a point, Ralph, and you have a bunch of FCS leagues that have decided to punt fall. They're saying it's not safe enough to try to play. It's not worth it. They can make those decisions because they've got a lot less money tied up in this in terms of media rights deals, obligations. You know, they're not competing for the college football playoff. But if you have FCS leagues making decisions like that, that puts pressure on the group of five. And if the group of five makes decisions because – they got some game, you know, if the Mountain West teams that usually play the Pac-12, they're not playing, you know, they got to make determinations. They're, they're, they're a flight league, you know, they're, they're traveling to different states. Is there self-quarantining rules when there's outbreaks? All of these questions, right? If, if FCS makes decisions, puts pressure on FBS, and the lower FBS puts pressure on the Power Five eventually. But to me, that's, that makes sense. And it might take a matter of weeks, which we've obviously already seen a week go by from the Ivy League. But these decisions are all connected, not just because they schedule each other, but because everyone is looking to see what everyone else is doing and the information that they have. And then the money is different. But again, the thinking is similar. And you're, you're again, you're talking about university presidents being tasked with making these decisions. And they're trying to figure out if they they're going to have students enroll in their campus at all this fall. So all of that is kind of in the backdrop of this, but, but to me, the Ivy league potentially impacting other FCS decisions and basketball league decisions that all eventually impacts 
the group of five and the group of five decisions could eventually impact the power five. Something to be noted. So it's funny. I wrote about the idea that the buy games could go away about a month and a half ago at a point when we were feeling a lot more optimistic. But I had done (laughs) the reporting on the story and I didn't go that deep into some of the contract stuff like you had done a really nice job of. It was just a matter of, hey, there's like X amount of games and they're worth X amount of dollars, you know, give or take a couple. Got some data from Gridiron, Dave Brown's company, and said, listen, this would be a problem. Just to let you know, if we go this direction, this is going to be a problem. And then everybody started feeling good about the season again, so the story yep. sort of went away. But one of the things I would point out about that that story that I did, I talked to Ryan Bamford, who is the AD at UMass, which is a tough job, FBS yep. school, but sort of at the very lowest part of FC, FBS. And we even quoted him with this in the story, you know, basically like... What he said is, listen, if the Auburn game, and he's got a like a $1.8 million payday against Auburn, if that goes away, that pretty much funds the rest of his season. And he sort of left it at that. And he's like, well, let's just leave it at that. But basically, when you talk to ADs at that level and then you go into the FCS level even more so, what essentially they'll tell you is, if they lose that game, that game funds the rest of their season, then they, they are better off not playing any games. There comes yes. a point where for that level, when you have that level of revenue you're not, and you're not saving, as you said, the big TV and media rights dollars, if you lose just one or two of your games, now all of a sudden it's just like the baseball. Like we, we heard saw baseball uh, this play out for, for a while among the MLB where the owners were like, listen, we're doing better off if we play less games. And I think that's what happens at, at, at the lower levels of college football. For a lot of and, programs, and, it's just like, hey, man, we're better off not playing anything. We're doing like better off financially not playing anything if we can't get that buy game. And it's worth pointing out, too, you're thinking about – I mean, we haven't talked about attendance and capacity in weeks, right, because the, the season itself is in doubt. But if you can't play in front of fans and you can't bring any money in from through ticket revenue – and you're these schools too, you know, you're better off. And, and I've had this, this line of thinking from in the group of five and the FCS leagues as well, but group of five too, is if you can try to play in the spring and there is a chance that, that as a society, we've contained the virus better and there's less restrictions on mass gathering sizes, social distancing. We know more about it. Maybe there's a vaccine, but maybe there's better treatment, whatever it might be. Maybe you can have fans. Maybe you can bring in revenue through ticket sales. That's something you're not going to have in the fall. So you talk about like the the significance to these budgets and the revenue and the costs and stuff. Those things matter more so. I mean, you know, the Power Five leagues would take big hits if they can't have fans for their football games. But media rights and the money that they're bringing in through that, that's that's why we've been having these conversations about do you play without fans? Because, you, you know, that money is so valuable at the lower levels. It make there there's there are there are people who truly believe if you can buy yourself some time to to hope that this, the society and everything's the the backdrop the environment surrounding college sports is better and maybe we can have fans that we can sell tickets to in the spring that helps us more too. I like the idea of spring for some of those other leagues. You know, it's funny. I got asked on a Sirius XM show from Greg McElroy, and he, he was talking specifically about FCS, not as much Group of Five. If, if FCS moved to spring, do you think that could be a new niche for them long term? I wasn't really down with that, but I do think in the short term, it's definitely a possibility. The other thing you, you don't have as much of, you still have this, but you don't have as much of in Group of Five FCS, 
though I guess it depends on how far down into the group of five you go, is the idea of, oh, I'm going to lose a bunch of my players. Now, you'll still lose players here who have NFL aspirations. That still will happen, but the simple fact of the matter is you don't have quite as many of them on those rosters, so it's a little more manageable. But listen, there are still issues with recruiting and things along those lines. I think it, it makes sense for a lot of, of a lot of leagues, especially the FCS leagues that are playing football but are really basketball-based leagues. But I, you know, th- there are some complications there too. And of course, the other problem with the kicking the can down the road, and I heard you and Andy, your colleague Andy Staples, talking about this, is if you push to spring. I mean, that's that's what's going on with the Ivy League and the Patriot League right now. They've kicked it down the road to spring. We're going to try it in the spring. But if spring doesn't work out, then they're doomed. And the upper levels of college football, well, not, they're, not that they're doomed, but that just means they can't play, right? There's not a lot of money on the line, but they can't play. The upper levels of college football need to take as many swings at this as possible, which is sort of why we're moving in the process we're going to right now. Like, okay, the SEC, we'll talk to you at the end of July. And, you know, the next month's not looking great. We'll get back to you in another month and maybe we'll start in mid-September. Okay, that's not looking great. Maybe we can start in October. So they're going to try as many times as possible to get this thing off the ground. I get that thinking, absolutely. But I also wonder if you're just going to have to pull a Band-Aid, right? Like, you're just going to have to make a determination and... Again, you know, do absolutely everything in your power that with this time that you have bought, if you're going to push it to spring, that you are going to figure out, you're going to make sure, again, we've gotten a lot of PSAs lately, you know, out of the SEC about wearing masks so we can have a football season. Should have been guiding them, getting them almost every day, every week since March, right? Like this is, it's it's society at large behavior. And I think Larry Scott has been very clear and, and Greg Sankey is now talking about this too, is... So one of the biggest threats to playing college football in the fall is that you're you're taxing, you know, the health services and, and hospitals and the, the there's just you need all those pieces surrounding in, you know, in the environment that you're going to then play sports in to be OK. Like the fact that 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 teams in baseball and, and colleges throughout the country are having trouble getting tests right now. Or their tests are, you know, taking a long time to get turnaround time because they're stressed. Like the healthcare system is stressed by the amount of outbreaks. These are things we didn't think we would be in this situation. Like when you talk about restarts with sports and coming back and that it's been four months since the pandemic hit, you're thinking all of those things for society at large are in a better place so that it works like that you're that you that you have access to tests you're you know the turnaround time for tests is getting less and less so you know hopefully you can test on a friday before you would get on a plane and play a game right and get that response immediately but some of those things are not happening because of the stress that's being put on the healthcare system right now so you're thinking if you push to spring that that things like that will get better Right. Yeah. Listen, I think there is absolutely going to be some serious debate going on between those two things. So there's there's a couple of things there. One quick note. I had an athletic director tell me, and again, I think this is probably more below the Power Five level, though. You know, we saw what Jamie Pollard came out yesterday from Iowa State, and he talked about $40 $40 million worth of losses 
And even if we played in spring, you're running the athletic department without that revenue, right? Like you're, you're expecting this revenue to run the next six months of your athletic department. And even if you say, oh, it'll come down the road, like that's great. Go tell your landlord, right? That like, oh, I have, I have $5 million coming in September. I'll pay my rent then. Right. They still want the rent now. Uh, It's not an exact analogy, but that's what he was talking about. Like, we can't just lose 40 million and then hope to get it back in the spring because how am I going to operate my budget? So I had another athletic director tell me it's more expensive to delay than cancel. If you cancel outright, you know that. You're yeah. canceling outright. Yeah, you can you can literally cut some costs and and to, to run a football program. Put put it this way: to operate a football pro- program in college without actually playing football is really costly. There are costs that go into just simply operating, keeping the program up and running. That will that when you're not playing and getting the revenue that is drawn from it. So that's a problematic too. Here, here, here's a question. Let's let's play devil's advocate again. We and I don't envy anyone who has to make these actual decisions, by the way, like at all. Um, but let's let's play devil's advocate. You you decide because of the risk of the spring that you do want to play in the fall, and you're pushed back, and you'll be flexible. And if you only end up playing six games, you only end up playing six games, whatever it is. But then you start a college football season, and it has to shut down. Yeah. Are you in a better position because you got a couple games in, or are you in a worse position because you had to? do a total shutdown yeah. than if you just pushed or didn't play at all. Probably in a worse position. I remember early on in this thing, one of the things Bob Bowlesby from the Big 12 told me and, and others was like, hey, I think the worst thing that we can possibly do yes. is start and stop. Yes. Is start and then, I mean, when he meant stop as in like stop. Like, okay, we've yeah, started. Yeah, not, not take like a week break. Yeah, yeah. not pause, no, but not. stop completely. And, I, and you know, then it also gets into the idea of like television contracts, right? And how much, at what point, does ESPN and Fox and and CBS say okay we've got it you've given us enough product and we're good partners so we're going to pay you most of what you, you know we're going to pay you enough we're going to pay you most of what you um what you needed uh, or what the agreement was or at what point is it like hey man like you gave us 4 weeks worth of games like sorry like we'll give you a, you know we'll prorate that and then you're going to have to make do yeah, and and if you shut down, if you start football and have to shut down, what does that mean for basketball? The NCAA tournament was canceled for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. That is the lifeblood for a lot of athletic departments that don't rely on big time football. It's also the lifeblood for the NCAA as an organization. Mm-hmm. So, does that put basketball in a more perilous position if you start football and shut it down, and then? How do you restart football? Like to me, to me, that's also a calculation because I agree with you that I think you're in a worse position if you start and have to stop totally mm-hmm. so, than to not play at all. So the last thing here, and we touched on this, is the idea of this broad. And you know, you've written about this. I'm in the process of trying to write about it. Everybody's kind of writing about it, and probably writing about it more and more right now because this is the the tone that's being set finally. Uh, in some ways, by the people who lead the sport and the idea that it's not really about how many players test positive on it is. I mean, that that's important. How many test pe- players test positive on a team is is important. It's the idea that there is a massive amount amount of infection out there in many places in the country. And as you said, college campuses, the universities at large and their athletic departments 
can't risk stressing that thing even more by allowing situations where even more virus can spread, by allowing more conduits to the virus. And the way I explained it to somebody was like, hey, man, your third team, you know, special teamers go out because they don't think they're going to play anyway. And they go out for beers and they get it. And yeah, they're all asymptomatic. But by the time you catch them with a test that they're asymptomatic, they've now infected a couple of other people who've infected a couple more people and they've infected a few more people. And a couple of those people end up in a hospital that is already being stressed. So it all comes back to that. That's why the environment, the country, states, need to look better. I talked to an epidemiologist yesterday who said, like, uh, she looks at test positivity rates. Uh, she helped some of the European soccer leagues get back. She consulted with them. She's from John, Johns Hopkins. And she said test positivity rates are a, are a pretty good threshold for us to work with. And she was saying, like, 5% is, like, a comfortable rate where you can start bringing back some big crowd things and you can start getting back into sports and things like that. 5% of the tests you conduct come back positive. 5% of the tests you conduct come back positive. Well, Florida's right now is close to 20%. And Arizona's is way into the double digits. And Texas is in the double digit. And there are other states that are way above 5%. That's what we're dealing with. That's why college sports are in dire are in a dire position right now. Here, here, here's another spot, another an add-on to that, because I think that's really helpful to think about. But also, how about this? You, you were talking right now, we've had positive tests shut down voluntary workouts in a number of places throughout the country. These are voluntary workouts in small groups. So, you know, not full team practices, but also the campus is not full with regular students yet. Mm-hmm. So, so you're thinking that you're going to add the regular campus population to the mix and not to your point about this idea of spread. It's going to spread college. A college campus is the opposite of a bubble environment and it is going to spread. People are going to hang out. Football players might be safest at practice because of the equipment they'll be using, the shields, um, you know, the, the social distancing, the requirements, the cleanliness, but then they're going to go hang out in dorms and apartments and go to class and go to cafeteria and play video games and all of these other activities that you would expect college students to do, even if they're trying to be careful, some of this is going to happen anyway. And so you you talk about, okay, you know, a couple positive tests have shut down workouts on different places, but now let's add thousands and thousands of regular college students to the environment that the athletes are in right now. That's also, you, you, you know, I talk to a lot of administrators who you, you think that through and you talk it out loud and then you say, there's just, how, how do you do that? How, how on earth can you do that? And have a season. Yeah. I, I, it's, in the fall. It's, it's becoming harder and harder to get your head around. We knew it was going to be difficult. And listen, let's just end on this note. Let's this broader point because um, I'm interested to hear a little bit of your idea on this. Like, I have avoided doing a lot of social media throughout a lot of this. And I'm definitely not in like I'm, I'm definitely I'm posting stories. I'm posting facts and some thoughts that like have sort of some analysis and facts in them when it comes to like just, hey, I have this idea. Here's something you should look out for things along those lines, stories and, and, and news and things along those lines. But what I have refused to do throughout this is get too engaged on social media on arguing with people about essentially what I figure is the analogy of like arguing about whether the sky is blue. 
Like, I, I'm not going to have those yeah. arguments. Yeah. And I see, yeah. I know, you know, you're a little more active on social media and Twitter. And I see you maybe sort of, I don't know if you've gone down that rabbit hole. I know some of our colleagues occasionally sort of get into that. And you'll see their timelines, you know, their mentions fill up. And I don't know if they look at that stuff. But I've just chosen not to get too much into trying to preach to people what they should do. Not preach, but just try to try to get certain messages across about what they should do. Because I'm just tired. I, I can't. I can't do it. I, I can't do it, Nicole. I just don't, I don't want to see. I don't even want to see it on my timeline. I'm, I know. Not, I'm not here for arguments about whether the sky is blue. The, yes. pan, the pandemic is what it is. You're either going to believe the experts and the doctors who are not always right because they are literally trying to figure this out on the fly. The great quote that I, I don't know if remember if you were on this call, but from the Notre Dame team doctor that I used in a story when he said uh, it's like dealing with this is trying to like is trying to, is like trying to fly the plane while you're building the plane. Well, <laughs> he's just a team doctor for Notre Dame. Think about the yeah. epidemiologists and the scientists who are trying to actually sort through this thing in real time. It's really hard and they're going to not necessarily have the best information all the time. And that information is going to evolve. But like I just I've waved the right white flag on trying to be sort of engaging on Twitter in a way where I feel like it might be educational because I think that the people who get it already get it and the people who don't get it will never get it. And that's where we are, which, of course, leads me to the idea that that hurts my heart because I think that there's enough people who don't get it that will not let this thing happen. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I mean, I, you know, I. You know, there's there's only and I see people who constantly are trying to, you know, explain why it's important to wear a mask and, and to do these different things. But when something like that has become political, it's it's not necessarily like like showing, you know, the facts and the data about it isn't necessarily going to change people's mind. I, I kind of stay away from that, too. You know, I've tried to be really, you know, straightforward about my reporting, about the sport and about the conversations that people are having then people accuse you of rooting against a season to happen. Obviously, we want a season to happen. Obviously, we want a college football season in the fall. We want it as close to normal as possible. But we're reporting on what people are actually talking about and thinking through and the contingency plans that they're actually examining. And so, so, so social media has been really hard throughout this, and it's tough because you know, you're limited in what you can do and where you can go, and not everyone can just – you know, literally be somewhere where you lose cell reception like you were. And it's it's <laughs> tough. I mean, it just it just wears you down. It beats on you. And I think the way that you described it as arguing about whether or not the sky is blue is just exhausting and just not worth the time. So so so, yeah, so I, f- I feel that, too. And 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 I do think that, you know, even some of these PSAs and a certain parts of the country that, you know, you know, weren't, weren't wearing masks or open too soon and and you know, it's 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 too late to to save a fall football season in the semblance of normalcy that we're used to, right? Like, I, so to me, it, it's tough. I mean, a lot of this turned really quickly about what three weeks ago, where you know, prior to that, everyone had been really optimistic about an on-time start to the season. I'd done a story on the week zero matchups and like how the athletic directors were preparing for them, and they were talking about contingency plans. I mean, I, you know, capacity plans for for various contingencies like whatever their state was going to let them do and right imagine fans in stadiums right that we were actually having serious conversations about fans in stadiums we did yeah they were like you know they're like we're modeling 10 percent, 25 50 i mean it's just that was only like three and a half weeks ago it it did turn really fast once you started to get data in certain places and see where these outbreaks were and just in how many college football hotbeds they were so you know it's 
it's tough. It's it's tough, and and it, it feels like more and more people in our space, and and the people we 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 talk to, we cover, um, people who have to make these decisions. It just it feels like everyone's getting hit with with reality right now, and and that's kind of why. I mean, I guess you could say we're being we sound pessimistic, but I think we're just being realistic. Yeah, I think it's realism right now is just hard to come up with a lot of good news in in the realistic world of this. I'm so happy you came on with me today and you did a great job of explaining all this stuff and you helped me learn a few things because, again, I'm trying, I'm, you know, after after three weeks, in, I, 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 so uh, behind a little inside baseball. So I was out in uh, like Yellowstone Park, Grand Tetons, and we had this trip planned for a long, long time. We figured other than the plane ride, it's going to be a pretty good social distancing kind of a type of vacation because mostly we're going to be hiking and things along those lines and in cabins by ourselves, my small family and I. Um, and it was great. And at one point, like last week when I was finally again starting to get some cell phone service and realized that, okay, boy, I'm coming back to a mess. I had uh, texted Nicole and a couple other people like, I think I'm just going to turn around and go live with the bears. <laughs> I, think, I think it might actually be safer. And I actually had yeah. a video of a yeah. bear. We actually saw a little a small young bear hanging out in the woods. We were in our car. He was probably as afraid of us as we were of him. But it was really nice to get away. And and again, I'm, I'm so happy you came on and brought us all up to speed. I thought I was going to start previewing conferences this week, Nicole. Uh, I thought it was going to be uh-huh. conference preview time. and But there was just no way I could go about doing that. We just There was just too much news going on. There's hope. I, I think there, there has to be somewhat glimmers of hope even within the realistic prospects of having a season not looking good because things can turn around, right? I, I just, yeah. I, li- we, I live in New York. We were the worst place on the planet when it come to the, came to the pandemic a few about a month and a half back, and now our test positivity rate is down around 1%. We had a day where nobody died of coronavirus. That's awesome. It can be done yeah. here. So I'm just hoping that maybe with a little luck and some buy-in from people that things turn around and maybe we can plow through a college football season that even if we do get to it and things improve is still going to be messy and wild. Yep, absolutely. Thanks, Nicole. I appreciate your time and all your reporting has been great and uh, good luck. Hopefully we see each other under somewhat normal circumstances, not too far down the road. I hope so too. Hopefully we'll be allowed to travel and hang out with people, have a beer. Someday. Maybe Someday. From, from six feet apart. From six feet apart. <laughs> and now, three and out. First down. Georgia and transfer quarterback JT Daniels got some good news earlier this week. The former USC player and five-star recruit will be immediately eligible to play this season. That gives Georgia two new, highly touted quarterbacks from which to choose. The Bulldogs already landed Wake Forest grad transfer Jamie Newman. And because the pandemic has mostly wiped out the offseason, neither quarterback has had the opportunity to master new offensive coordinator Todd Munkin's system. Georgia's maybe the most fascinating national championship-level team heading into this season, if we have a season, because it has pivotal new parts with really high ceilings. A quarterback competition between Newman and Daniels would be fascinating to see play out, if nothing else. It would potentially give Georgia two quarterbacks capable of leading an otherwise stacked team to a national championship. Second down, the decision to grant Daniels immediate eligibility wasn't surprising because of the merits of the case. We really don't know what exactly was in Daniels' appeal, and the NCAA's decisions 
are hard to judge anyway because each waiver request is a little different. What was surprising was the speed with which it was processed. Daniels committed to Georgia about two months ago and made it official not long after that. The resolution and the speed of which it came was, of course, noticed by fans of other teams waiting out similar decisions, like those at Boston College, who are still awaiting a final word on Phil Jerkovic, the Notre Dame transfer who committed to Boston College back in January. Third down, last little bit of transfer quarterback news. Jason Shelley, a former three-star recruit who backed up Tyler Huntley at Utah for a couple of seasons, is transferring to Utah State. Shelley will compete to replace Jordan Love with the Utes and stands a good shot to fill that hole. Shelley's a little undersized at about 5'11", but he showed signs of being a pretty good player when he started five games for Utah in 2018 in place of Huntley when he was hurt. Shelley's decision comes after the Utes landed former South Carolina quarterback Jake Bentley. The quarterback wheel keeps spinning, even in a pandemic. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Westwood One Podcast. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. After our little break last week, we will be coming to you every week with updates on where we stand on getting the college football season off the ground. The plan was to start doing some conference previews. We might do some of that as well, but the news ultimately will drive this show. And if we get a little more clarity on the season actually starting, maybe we'll pivot then into previewing a season. But as right now, we're just hoping we will have a season. We will try to do a little bit of each but my guess is the news will dominate things for a while. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening. Come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC.